Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Let's open in prayer. Father, we come humbly, submissive to you, to your word and wanting to obey and walk in your ways. So we ask, Lord, manifest your word into our lives that you would change us and transform us, empower us by your Spirit to bring glory to your Son, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would like to read the context of our passage before we really jump up into our passage. Let's read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish and empty conceit, but in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being come obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. Verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in a midst of crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain." Our text today is is an interesting text because D.L. Moody put it this way, when a man is full of the Holy Spirit, he is the very last man to be complaining about others. We have a tendency to, to complain, to grumble, to murmur. In fact, that's discontent. And discontent also breeds impatience. Another defining characteristic, really, of our times among the seemingly endless causes of impatience, often hostility, are long lines or interruptions or talkative people, rude people, 
high prices and traffic jams and inconsiderate drivers and crying babies. The last two have actually become the causes of very serious crimes. Inconsiderate drivers often produce road rage and results in gunfire and even murder. See, people can't control themselves. In fact, oftentimes they don't want to control themselves. Sometimes we just really don't know why there's a traffic jam or why things are happening. Fact is, we don't really know what's going on in that inconsiderate driver. We don't know why that baby's crying, but people react. People often leave a church because dissatisfied with some minor aspect of the leadership or organization or even a policy. Churches that promote self-esteem and self-fulfillment really fuel the fires of discontent and complaining because it's all about me. And the fact is, it isn't about me. Stop and think for a second. Adam was the first complainer. And immediately after he disobeyed, immediately Adam blamed blamed God. Yeah, it's your fault, God. You gave me the woman. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Yeah. Instead of blaming himself, instead of owning up to the fact he made the choice, he blamed God. Then think again, some years later, we have the firstborn Cain. He complained bitterly to God that his punishment for murdering his brother Abel was just too severe. Then Moses complained to the Lord because he did not deliver Israel from Pharaoh quickly enough. And after God had miraculously delivered him by the drowning and the pursuing of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, most of the people sang a glorious song and praise to God. But afterwards, going only three days in the wilderness, they complained again because the water of Marah was not fit to drink. Marah meaning bitter, and they were bitter. And God was using that to reveal the bitterness in their heart. Yet they refused to see. In James chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Believers fail to willingly, even joyfully, submit to God's sovereign care. It's a very serious crime. Years ago, there was a lady. She was an incurable grumbler, complained about everything. But finally, the minister thought he had found something about which he could make no complaint. The old lady's crop of potatoes was incredible. It was the finest for miles around. And for once, you must be pleased. And he said with a beaming smile as he met her in the village street, everyone is saying how splendid your potatoes are this year. And the old lady glared at him, and she answered, they're not so bad, but where's the rotten ones for the pigs? All she can do is find negative. You know, some people are not happy unless they're grumbling and they're murmuring. But notice what God says. He says, stop grumbling. In fact, it's a command. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. 
Well, that phrase, all things, takes us back, as I read in the context, to to chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It was there we saw that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in us, to do his will in his purposes. This is one of the ways in which believers are to work out their salvation. How? By not grumbling, not disputing. But later on, he's going to say in Philippians, and really this is the cure, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Quit looking at what we think are bummers and look at our blessings. You know that word grumbling is translated as complaining, murmuring, whispering, quarreling. It means that quiet, oftentimes soft, behind-the-back undertone of complaining and murmuring. It's really a kind of criticism and dissatisfaction and fault-finding and gossip that goes on within small groups. The results of these murmurings, they're far worse than people could ever imagine. And this is the primary reason God forbids, forbids murmurings. In no uncertain terms, in fact, murmuring hurts people. It damages lives. It divides. It tears down and a person and and person says, Look at me and elevates his selfish opinion. In fact, it opposes God's will. It even hinders the progress of what God's doing. It misleads people. It's so self centered. It pushes people away from Christ and even the church. Look with me in Luke, Luke chapter 5, verse 30. And the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? See, look at him looking down, judging, self-righteous, arrogant, disputing over things they should never dispute. In fact, they should be joyful that they're coming to see Christ. But the fact is, they did not even recognize Christ. It's been said that sometimes the grumblers and murmurs don't even know who Christ is because it's so unlike Christ. Disputing is a word that's basic meaning means inner reasoning. It's a term from English word we get our dialogue. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They're reasoning in themselves, making themselves judges. It oftentimes develops into more specific ideas of questioning and doubting, disputing the truth. And Romans fourteen one, the word is used as passing judgment on another another believer's opinions. First Timothy two eight, it, it renders a the same word renders dissension, and because that's what it breeds is dissension. Whereas grumbling is essentially emotional and disputing is essentially intellectual. A person who continues to murmur and grumble against God will eventually argue and dispute with God, finding fault with God again and again and again, and yet blinded by their own sin. Yes, it's sin to grumble and murmur. They can't see. Sin blinds a person 
It gouges out their eyes and leaves them grinding away in this life. Sadly, believers can be argumentative and contentious even though they're citizens of heaven. And when this is true, their witness, their influence on those around them has been affected severely. At times, the Lord will often lead believers through times of trials, testings. We call it a refining process. They could even be expected to be persecuted because of their faithfulness to the Lord. And each and every circumstance of life should be accepted willingly, joyfully, without murmuring, complaint, or disappointment, much less any resentment. There's no exception. There should never be either emotional grumbling or an intellectual grumbling. Look at Philippians 4, 1, or excuse me, 4, 11 through 12. Now that I speak from want, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm, I am. I know how to get along with in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both in having abundance and suffering need. Contentment. That's something that oftentimes it, we lack. That Jesus is enough. No matter what we're going through, Jesus is enough. See, when we realize that Jesus is enough, we have no need for grumbling, murmuring. But when we do, we exalt ourselves and in, in another sense say, God, I know they're your workmanship, but Lord, you need my help. God doesn't need our help. God needs our submission. Notice the reasons, though, for to stop grumbling. We find those in verses 15 and 16 in our text. So that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in a midst of a crooked, perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Really, in our text, is lining out three reasons why believers should stop grumbling or complaining. One, for their own sakes. Two, for the sake of unbelievers. Three, for the sake of their pastors. Well, let's look at the, the believers, the believers' own sake. Verse 15 again, so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent of children of God above reproach. Believers are to stop complaining so that they may become a kind of children of God that he wants them to be. That's important to understand. Again, that they become the kind of children God wants them to be. Namely, blameless and innocent. We're to be children, children of God, that is, by faith. And as his children, we should be imitators of God which one day we will be totally, completely blameless and innocent. And this requires, if this is to be, 
to stop grumbling, complaining about, uh, about it hindering the work of God. Now, the word blameless means without defect or blemish. Stop and think. There's a couple good examples in the New Testament. Zacharias and Elizabeth. Remember them, the parents of John the Baptist? In Luke chapter 1, verse 6, notice what the Scripture says. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in, in all the commandments and the requirements of the, the Lord. Now, were they perfect? No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice, in God's sight... They were righteous, walking blamelessly. Their their heart was set on honoring God. Yes, they sinned. Yes, they fell short. But you know what? They wanted to do the right thing, and God was going to enable them to do the right thing. They wanted to keep the commandments, and God was enabling them. Yet there were moments that they struggled, just as every person does. God was looking at their heart. And yet, their heart was producing something that stood out that others could see as well, not just God. Now, Paul expressed to the Thessalonians his deep desire that God would establish their hearts without blame and holiness before God and the Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saints. Now, it's interesting, the the word innocent has a meaning of being unmixed or unadulterated. It's used metamorphically in the New Testament as as guileless or even sincere. Jesus commands his disciples, be shrewd as serpents, yet innocent as doves. Similarly, Paul admonished the Romans to be wise in what is good, innocent of what is evil. See, the believer's life is to be pure, unmixed with sin or any evil at all. As children of God, Christians are to be above reproach. The character of the children of God should be above any legitimate blame or criticism. Now, people may find, try and find fault, but nothing will stick. I love Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, first of all, that's our position. He chose us to be that way, but he will finish that work in you and me one day. In Second Peter 3, 10, 11, look with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And what is the day of the Lord? That's a time of judgment beginning at that tribulation when God is going to to really judge or in this case reveal who's true believers and not. They're going to bring, again, Israel to himself, the true remnant of Israel, and every unbeliever will have a chance also to receive him. But there's going to be a judgment for those that do not receive him. So again, in Second Peter, notice what it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. They're going to be unaware, in which the heavens will pass away and roar and elements will be destroyed with intense heat and, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
when we look around, we see the way the world's going and judgment will fall. We should be walking in holy conduct, walking in godliness, and not a part of this society. We'll notice again, it, it's for the sake, a reason that we need to stop grumbling. Is, it's, again, in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast that word of life. Our witness is so important. See, the second reason we're seeing here is is not complaining is, is negative impact that it has upon the unbeliever. Those who belong to this crooked and perverse generation, which is really speaking about a whole unbelieving world, we affect them. That idea of this crooked and perverse generation goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32.5, they've acted corruptly toward him, referring to God. They're not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Look around. Look at the way the world, the morals, the values of life, they're spiraling downward. I like, though, Proverbs twenty-eight eighteen says, he who walks blamelessly will be delivered. Delivered again from this day of the Lord. Delivered from judgment. But he is crooked. We'll fall at once. Now that idea of crooked refers to bent or curved or twisted. And really, twisted values of life. Now describing the, the morally, spiritually corrupt world system is really what it's doing. And those are who are blinded by the God of this world. That's referring to to Satan. In fact, when we stop and think about it, on the island of Patmos, Paul had condemned a magician, a false prophet, Bar-Jesus, or Elimus, saying, you're full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness. We not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? He in his mind knew the truth, but yet he made crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Several years later, Paul had warned the elders from Ephesus that from among yourselves will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Talking about the false teachers, the false prophets who'd raise up and draw people after themselves. The crookedness and the perversity of this modern world, they're obvious and it's pervasive. The examples are, are not even necessary. Just look around and our, our hearts grieve. It is a crooked. It is a perverse generation. Yet, what a beautiful example of, of the people that need to be saved, that need Jesus. In fact, that's Jesus' desire. In Acts 2.40, we see in, with many other words, he solemnly, referring to Peter, kept on exhorting them, saying, be safe from this perverse generation. There's a cry that needs to go out in this world. In fact, in John 17, 17 and 18, we see Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. 
women sent in this world to to be a light. That's what we're going to see. To be this witness that's blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach. It's important what we say, how we say it, what we preach and teach. Do we really live it and did we teach it? If that's the case, we will be a light unto the world. The way of believers live as children of God has such a dramatic impact on how they influence this godless world around them. Maybe you live in a place where you hear your neighbors fighting and yelling and screaming at each other all the time. What if that was a believer? What kind of witness would that be? Stop and think when you hear that yelling and screaming, it's because people are in the flesh. It's because people aren't willing to submit to what God says. Because when we choose to do it to God's way, we don't have these problems. It's when we do it our own way. When we choose to walk in the flesh, that we're no longer a light unto the world and our witness is destroyed. But Christians must appear as lights to the world. We must let our lights shine. Now the the term is metamorphically, Paul declares Christians are to be a moral or spiritual light or illuminaries like the stars to, to radiate God's truth, one through our life and the words that we speak into what is known as a, a dark, sinful universe. In fact, Daniel's chapter 12 kind of focuses on that a little bit. He says this, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in him was the life, referring to Jesus, and the life was the light unto men. And the light shines in darkness, but the darkness does not comprehend it. Notice, those that are walking in darkness do not comprehend the light. That's why they need that continual light and influence. Matthew 5, 14 says, you are a light on a hill. A city set up on a hill cannot be hidden. If you went to Israel, you would see that there's these main roads that run along the coastline and inland, and, and there are cities built upon a hill. And these are towels where they used to be, and these, these cities would control the road, and they controlled the world. But also as travelers were coming, they would see this light afar, continually looking, and it would hone them in. And our lives should be like that light upon a hill, like a city set up on a hill. It cannot be hidden that they continually see that influence. They continually see that difference in our life. And that's so important. They, they need that. They're walking in darkness. Matthew, again, 5.16 says, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now these good works are good works prepared before the foundation of the world for you and me to walk in these good works. And when we are in the light, we walk in these naturally because God puts these desires in our hearts. This is working out our salvation in fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in us to will and do his purpose. 
And when we do, we glorify the Father in heaven. And certainly the world, because they see there's a change. They see the mercy. They see the kindness. They see the love as something they did not know in the world. And it's a powerful influence upon them. The quality of the believer's life, whether faithful or obedient, unfaithful or disobedient, is really our platform for a testimony. It either have a positive effect or a negative effect. Now look at verse 16 again in our text. Notice the word holding fast. Holding fast means to hold forth or hold fast the, the word of life and apply it. In fact, that's what some translations say, but not all translations say it. In fact, two of them, the King James and the Amplified, as well as the Living Bible, put it this way, holding out, offering to all men the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have something of which to rejoice and glory in, that I did not run the race in vain and spend my labor in no purpose. Now, I believe both are true biblically in the Bible. A person needs to hold fast to the Word of God, and that person that holds fast to the Word of God and applies this to their life, that's again working out their salvation in fear and trembling, okay, that is the person who then holds out this Word of God that is a light unto people. They hold out the Word, the redeeming Word that brings eternal life to people. I think that's something that happens in maturity. I think really the context of the passage is is that we're to hold out. Hold out this word of life, which is more specifically the gospel message. Well, let me show you a few verses again in John 6, verses 66 through 68. As a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answers, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew that Jesus had the words of eternal life. The word of God is how a person is born again. Let me show you. First Peter one twenty three. For you have been born again, not by the seed which is perishable, but the imperishable, that is, through the living, enduring word of God. People need to see the word of God lived out in their lives. They need to hear the word of God. Well, there's a third thing. So that the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I want to call your attention again. This is the third thing, the third reason we are to quit complaining for the sake of the leaders. Now, we see the words day of Christ. There's the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a judgment that will come upon an unbelieving world when this world is being tested. 
book of Revelation calls them earth dwellers. You and I as believers are not earth dwellers. We're pilgrims. Our home is in heaven. The day of Christ is where the Bema seat is going to be. It's a time that will be caught up and will be rewarded. Rewarded for those things we did with pure motives. Now Paul's past pastoral heart shines through in his deep desire that the Philippians would stop their grumbling and complaining. So in the day of Christ, that day of rewards, he'll have reason to glory. He anticipated this day of Christ when he'd look back and rejoice at the faithfulness of those who beloved brethren. Stop and think for a second in your own personal life. You've loved it when your kids were growing up and and they would do good in school or they would do good in sports and you're excited to see them achieve and grow and you're excited in, in church and, and they're learning the memory verses and they're sharing their faith with their friends, their young friends and so excited and you want them to go further than than you've ever gone. How much more your heavenly father how much more your spiritual father. I don't think there's any other greater joy than for a pastor, for the elders, for the deacons, to see people mature, to see people growing in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Knowing as they've invested their lives, they've denied themselves and they've given themselves to the Lord, to see the work that God has done in your hearts. See, this is for the sake of grumbling. Grumbling will hinder that work that God's doing in a person's life. But Paul's looking for that day. He knows God's going to finish that work, but he's exhorting them. And sometimes all of us need to be exhorted to do the right thing. The fact is all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But the focus is not a punishment. It is only rewards. In fact, look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. It's on the screen. Each man's work will be evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. In saying that he would have reason to glory. The apostles really saying, expressing his his sinful pride, really in his ministry, even obsession, to see the importance to the kingdom and eternal heaven. As I already noted in the present text, Paul's speaking specifically about glory and joy he would experience in the, the day of Christ. And really to see your kids, to see your loved ones, just be rewarded, that is enough. Seeing them be submissive to the Lord and and become everything they can, nothing else matters. God is glorified and, and the glory of God is manifest in those loved ones. And that's really a father's heart. In this case, it's a spiritual father's heart. The best thing that believers can do is faithfully live out the truth. Faithfully hold on that word of God and hold it out to others. Work out their salvation and fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in them. And the fact is then those leaders, they won't run in vain. They, they won't toil in vain. 
That's why, again, the, the author of the book of Hebrews writes this, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. First of all, leaders will be accountable for bringing the word of God. First in their own lives, being that example, being influence, they should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. They should be men that hold on to the word of God and hold it out to others and demonstrate what the life, the Christ-like life is looking like. And then as they give it to others, the people then hold on to it and hold out to others and live it out in their own lives. My exhortation to you today is the exhortation that was given in the book of Titus. Let me read it. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God appeared, that's Christ, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the peering of the glory of our great Father and God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The fact is, if we do this, we will stop grumbling we will stop murmuring. We will have a godly influence upon those around us. And we will be a blessing to those mentors, those leaders that God has placed around us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. We love you. And we ask you, Lord, that that you would make our hands faithful as we put our hands to the plow. The Lord, that we bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.